Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Well, have you ever ever wondered how far liberty goes? in regard to behavior not specifically forbidden in Scripture. Kind of talking about some old school things like, you know, should, should I smoke? Should I play cards? Should I use makeup? Should I dance? What about should I play sports on Sunday? What kind of music can I listen to? Should we go to the movies? Should we wear jeans in church? Should we celebrate the pagan holiday of Easter or Halloween or Valentine's Day? On and on and on it goes. You ever wondered about that kind of stuff? Paul, in the book of Corinthians, is answering a series of questions. And so a question kind of similar to this comes to the forefront in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In our text this morning, Paul addresses something that it may, it may like be something you're like, man, there's no way I can relate to that. But taking a closer look, it's really, really where we are, and there's, there's tons of application here. We all face what to do when we encounter the gray areas of life. Gray area, in my definition, would be a situation without a clear yes or a clear no from the Bible. There are principles that we obey all the time. But a literal yes and no from the Bible on certain things, when there aren't any yes or no's in the Bible about things, what do we do? How do we use our Christian liberty and at the same time honor Jesus? That's kind of where we're headed today. So when we face those gray areas that that I'm calling, there are usually three approaches that we find people engaging in. First is what I call the liberalism approach. That is that people say, well, I'm just going to do what I want to do and it's got to be okay. Well, you can certainly do what you want to do but it doesn't mean that it may not be harmful to you or hurt your testimony, and you may not be honoring Jesus. The second approach is the legalism approach. And what I mean by that is, is, well, there aren't any yes or no's, so we're just going to make up our own yes or no's, and then we're going to make sure everybody else lives up to our yes or no's. So we're going to keep a list, and then we're going to judge everybody else's spirituality based on our self-imposed and self-created list. Well... If there aren't lists in the Bible concerning those issues, I don't think we need to be making lists either. The third approach is what I'm referring and what Paul deals with here, and it's called the liberty approach. Here, I am free in Christ, but I want to make sure that I always use my freedom to glorify Jesus and encourage others. See, the Corinthians were facing one of those issues concerning their Christian liberty. The issue came up about eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. I know, I I can almost imagine right now, you're like, oh no, (laughs) finally the answer. I mean, we were driving in today, 
We would just hope and the pastor would tell us whether we could eat meat sacrificed to idols. I know that's probably what was on your mind. I'm so glad that I'm here to answer your question. I'm so glad that that's what you're arguing about as you're preparing to come to church this morning because this is where we're at. But seriously, what you, you may not have been asking that question, but I'm certain that you've been asking questions that you wonder what to do with morally neutral issues where there isn't a little yes or no in the Bible. I'm fairly certain. Paul helps us with this and tells us that we have freedom in Christ, but yet there's some other things we need to consider. Paul's going to tell us that, yes, we're free in Christ to do a lot of things, but we have to balance that with some other things. So Paul tells us these areas that we need to keep in balance. So I wonder if you would stand to your feet as we just read from the Word of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13, and so this is the Word of God. Amen, church? Let's hear what the Lord has to say in His holy inspired Word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, the Bible begins with these words. It says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat it, or the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he is weak, is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died, and so by sinning against the brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. You may be seated, and may God bless his word. You're saying, what in the world is Paul talking about? Let's walk through this text. I want to tell you, man, this has been fun to prepare. Right. This has been a doozy. And so I, I, I have worked so hard to try to make this simple and clear because it is difficult to understand. So, so walk with me as we just kind of look at three, three things that we have to balance. First of all, I think believe Paul teaches us here, we can balance information and compassion. We can balance information and compassion. Look there back in verse 1. He says, now concerning these things, because he's, he's talking about the question that's been asked. They've asked him this question. 
Things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. That, that sounds weird. But knowledge makes scary, but love edifies. And if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. So the Corinthians had written Paul about the question of meat being sacrificed to idols, and they'd given him a theological explanation as to what they believed, and they wanted Paul to back them up on their theological explanation. Paul doesn't necessarily agree with them. Paul moves in a different direction, a different one than they were even expecting. He says, we know something. Look there in your Bible. And in the first thing, the first word, he says, now we know that we all have knowledge. That, that word know, the first one means to know intuitively or without effort. Paul's saying there's just some things we just know. We just know. We don't have to learn it. We just kind of know it. He says, we know intuitively that we all have knowledge. And knowledge is the word that means that we've learned it through effort or experience. So Paul's saying there's just some things that we kind of know because we've come to know them. Seems really strange. He starts here. He says that just because you know some things or because you've been taught or disciplined in them doesn't really mean that you know everything. And if you did know everything, you don't know it as you ought to know it. So Paul, what are you really saying? He's saying that having information when others don't may lead you to pride. He says that knowledge makes arrogant. It, it literally means to puff up. He's, he's used that word before. But love, he says, love edifies. It literally means to build a house. So sure, you may have information, but you have to balance it with love. In other words, if you think you have all the answers, if you think you have all the information that others don't, if your information is not balanced with love, then you've really misunderstood the purpose of the information you have. Information pumps you up, but love builds up. And we must balance what we know with love for others who may not know. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Think about it. How did you come to know and love God? Well, God knew more than you knew. <laughs> and if God just kept that knowledge to himself and then expected you to kind of keep up with it, that wouldn't be very loving of God because he knows far more than anybody. But God set aside some of that and out of compassion reached for us who didn't know. And he's saying that if, if you know God, if anyone loves God, you'll be known by him. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is if you know like God knows, you will love like God loves. God has all knowledge, but he has deep compassion for people who don't know what he knows. So we have to balance this. Paul is foreshadowing something that he's going to get into in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Verse 4, therefore, he says, therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore. He says, therefore, concerning the things eating sacrifice, we know something else. We've been taught, we have been discipled, and we have learned that there's no such thing as an idol. There aren't other gods. Those things are the figment of people's imaginations. But in contrast, there's only one God. So follow his logic. What Paul is saying is, is that a non-existent God could not accept or even contaminate food that's been offered on an altar. 
So, so you shouldn't be worried about this because those, those sacrifices, those idols, those idols don't exist. So why are you stressing about this? And that makes sense. So, so why not, Paul, why not just continue with your stellar logic? Because that's his point. Just because I know that doesn't mean then that I have to force that upon other people. I need to reach out in love to those who don't know what I know. In other words, he's saying I shouldn't use my information as a weapon to fight with, but as a tool to build with. The weaker Christians were judging and criticizing the stronger brothers who had knowledge, and thus it made it hard for the stronger believers to minister to the weaker believers. The weaker believer didn't have the information that the stronger believer had. The weaker believer came from a background of saturation in idol worship and thus to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, they were just coming fresh out of it. That was a problem for them. And so they were criticizing all the stronger believers because they could go do it and they had no problem with it. But the stronger believers were supposed to say, yes, we're free, but we can't treat you any differently. So Paul says, that's where love comes in. I have to balance my information with compassion. Some Christians grow in love. Some Christians just swell with information. Some people grow in love, others just grow in knowledge. And Paul knew that they had knowledge about these non-deities and that they would then have the freedom to eat the meat. But he wanted them to know that information must be balanced with compassion. So verses 5 and 6, for even if they're so-called gods, even if there were many gods and many lords, but yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for Him, and the one Lord Jesus by whom are all things and we exist through Him. So you've got to understand that in Corinth, where they were at, that many people believed in many gods and many lords. Many of them were on earth and some of them were in heaven. Today, you would know that about the Greek pantheon of gods, or better known, you would know that as Greek mythology. But in their day, many believed those gods and lords were real, so they built literal temples to them and offered things to them. Paul has just said the question is, Eating of things sacrificed to idols. So then, here's the thing. With all those gods, there had to be a way to appease them. So they would offer meat of a sacrifice, and they would offer it in the temple that the idol was, was there for. And there's three things you have to understand about the process. Some of the meat would be offered up to the idol, and it would just be left on the altar. Some of the meat was eaten by the priests, who would kind of prepare the offering. And then some of the meat would be eaten by the offerer themselves. Because there were so many gods and so many lords, there were so many sacrifices made, the priests couldn't eat all their portion. So the priests would set up a meat market right beside the temple. And they would sell that meat to people for cheaper than they could get it anywhere else. And so people were like, hey, Man, this is the cheapest place to get meat. Coupon today, let's go to the auto meat market. It's just cheaper there. Well, here's the problem. Not only was it a polytheistic culture, in other words, a belief in many theists, many gods, it was also polydemonistic, meaning that there were numerous evil spirits. 
And so food sacrifices were important for both beliefs. It was to appease the God, but then also they believed that evil spirits were constantly trying to invade humans. And the easiest way was to attach themselves to food before it was eaten. And the only way the evil spirit could be removed from food was for that food to be sacrificed to a god. That way it gained the favor of the god and cleansed the food from the evil spirit. So people knew not only was this cheaper meat, but it was also free of demons. Thus, some of the believers couldn't eat this meat because of the memories it created or because they were afraid that anyone who saw them doing this may have thought that they had reverted back to pagan worship. And Paul says, hey, if idols don't have a real existence, this meat is not evil and it's not demon-possessed, so this meat is just cheap. Just eat the stuff. Some of the believers were still struggling to get free from their past. And so Paul says, the more mature is to balance their information with compassion. Verse 6, he says there, he says, yet for us there is one God. And one of the reasons God calls us away from idol worship is because it is foolish to worship something that doesn't exist, right? That's vanity. But there is one God who does exist and is worthy of all our worship. There is one God, and then he says, the one Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's kind of back up and and, and, and kind of unpack that for a minute. He says there's one Lord. Lord is a word that means superiority or deity. So so Paul is describing the the, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a superior one. If there were, and there aren't, but if there were other gods and other lords, Jesus is supreme. But there aren't, and there's only one, and Jesus is Lord of all. But then he says, the Lord Jesus. He means that Jehovah is salvation is what that word means. The word Jesus, Yeshua, means Jehovah saves. It describes the mission of the Messiah who would save God's people from their sins. And he says, this is the Lord, the the one above all, the the Messiah, the one who's going to save their people from their sins. And in case you didn't catch on to that, he says, he's also Christ. Christ means the anointed one. So Christ is the only Messiah. He's God who's come in the flesh to save his people from their sins. Matter of fact, Jesus is so sovereign that he is the one through whom all things exist, he says there. Jesus is the agent of creation. These other gods have been created by men, but Jesus is God who hasn't been created by men, but has created all men. (laughs) He is also the only one through whom we can have a relationship with the Father. The psalmist kind of put it this way in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak, which would also mean they have mouths and they cannot eat. (laughs) They have eyes and they cannot see. They have ears and they cannot hear. They have noses and they cannot smell. They have hands and they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them and everyone who trusts in them. This This is the vanity of idol worship. And so Paul is saying, listen. Not only is it ludicrous to believe that that somehow this is wrong for you as a believer to to think that those idols affect what you eat, they don't really even exist because they don't even have any any mouths or ears or eyes to even accept what you're even offering. Worshiping something or someone before Christ is empty and sinful. 
But this really isn't the issue, is it? It's not about idol worship. It's about eating meat that has been offered to an idol. So Paul says, we know that they don't exist. We know something. We have some information. There's only one God and one Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 7, he says, however, not all men have that knowledge. Not all the believers in Corinth that were gathered in that church meeting had that knowledge. Most of them hadn't been discipled to this point. They had just been recently saved out of an intense idolatry. Many of them probably the week before had just been into the idol temple worshiping that idol and then they heard the gospel and now they're saved and they're wondering, what do we do? Some were fresh out of idolatry and so they were struggling with the liberty that some people had to eat the meat that had just been sacrificed in a temple they used to go to. Paul is saying that if you use your information and you eat this meat and don't consider the impact it may have on others who don't have that information, you're missing the point of the information that you have. You must have compassion on people and not use your freedom to do what you want to do because you love them even though they don't know what you know. So don't let what you know or what you think you know, don't let that knowledge override your love for someone who doesn't know what you know. In other words, don't get the better deal at the meat market. Go somewhere else, pay the higher price, move far away if it causes your brother to stumble. So I know you're probably back there saying, man, this is so philosophical. What are you really even saying? Let me bring it down just one small application of many that we could do today. So why are we taking the time, and why did Paul take the time to make a big deal about eating meat? Well, y'all know we in Texas, right? Meat's a big deal here, amen? <laughs> so why allow, why allow this issue to cause division and cause all this fuss in the church? Paul takes chapters 8 through 10 to talk about this issue, so we're going to be here for a while. But think about it this way, right? We're looking back 2,000 years and asking what was really the big deal. Well, the church in Corinth might have looked 2,000 years in the future and asked the same thing. One application, I'm not judging, I'm just showing you how to make the application. The church in Corinth may have looked 2,000 years in our future and said, what's the big deal about this? Why were and why are wearing masks for the sake of others a big deal? Some may know, some may have the knowledge that they don't really make a difference. Some may have knowledge that there's so many things wrong with all that COVID protocol. So why would you defile and mistreat others because they don't have or believe the information that you believe? Why don't you have compassion on them and seek to build them up rather than using your information and come across so prideful and demeaning? Why would you allow that to become so disruptive? I didn't mean to step on anybody's toes. I'm just showing you we still deal with this kind of stuff. And we ought to use our information and balance it with compassion. That's what Paul is saying. Does the Bible say you should or should not wear a mask? Absolutely not. So what do you do? Should you or should you not? You balance your information with compassion. And if me wearing a mask causes my brother to stumble, I won't wear a mask. If me not wearing a mask causes my brother to stumble, then I'll put a mask on. Does that make sense? 
We, it got real in here real quick. Again, I don't, I'm not trying, to, not trying to be the Holy Spirit in anybody's life. I'm just trying to tell the principle applies in our culture right now. We have to balance information with compassion. Secondly, we balance individuality and community. Balance individuality and community. Look there in verse 7, the latter part in verse B. He says, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Man, Paul, idols don't exist. Yes, it's true, but some don't know that. Some used to be associated with idols. They went to the temple and they offered food. They thought the idol was real and that they were offering to a real, literal God. So now... When they see you eating that meat, which is okay for you, and you're the stronger one, they're going to think it's okay for them to do it. And thus they will violate their own conscience. They felt it was wrong because of their past experience. They felt it was wrong because it communicated the wrong message of what they have just come out from. And maybe others would think that they were still worshiping those idols. So as a result, their conscience has been defiled. Let's think about that for a moment. What is conscience? Conscience is not law. But conscience does bear witness to God's moral law. Conscience depends on knowledge. So the more you know and act on, the stronger your conscience is. But some believers had weak consciences because they hadn't been exposed to God's word yet. It's easy for a weak brother to be defiled or wounded or offended in their conscience. In other words, the sense of reality to them was such Then when they ate of the food that had been sacrificed to idols, they couldn't help but remember the system of worship associated to the idol, and it felt like they were defying Jesus. So while you may have the individual liberty to do what you want to do, you have to remember that you're a part of a community. You have to think about what your actions will do and how it will affect the community. You are a part of a body of Christ. Though you are an individual member, you're still a part of a bigger body. And how you hurt one part of the body is how you hurt the whole body. Someone has compared the conscience to a metal ring. So imagine I have a metal ring up here in my hand and it has three barbs hanging off of it. And that metal ring with those barbs hangs over your heart. If you do something right, it just sits there. But if you do something wrong, the the, the ring itself moves and those barbs press in and cause pain in your heart. That's your conscience telling you that something is wrong. Some understood that nothing was wrong with the idols and their conscience was like, there's nothing happening here. But some people, when they ate that, it pushed in on their heart. It defiled their conscience. Even though you and I know that that stuff is not real, it's not true, we have to be moved with love and suspend our freedom for the sake of others. Verses 8 through 11. But check this out. I mean, food won't commend us to God. You're the worse if we don't eat or the better if we do eat. But, but take care, Paul says, that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone sees you have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, right? Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? In other words, if they see you doing it, and they think it's okay for you to do it, then they're going to do it because you're the stronger one. They want to follow your example, but it might have been a problem for them. Verse 11, through, through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. Did y'all see that? That's strong language. 
the brother for whose sake Christ died. Paul says, by eating, one does not advance with abundance to God. By not eating, one doesn't fall short. And while this should not be a matter of conscience, this is not at all what there is to consider. Liberty is not complete freedom. That's this point. My freedom in Christ, the authority, the authority to make my own decisions, is not to be used in a way that causes others to stumble. Liberty in Jesus was freely given to us, but it cost us to use it. One of the costs is the concern for others in our community, in our church. And while we do have individuality, listen to me, our lives are not private in the body of Christ. Here's Paul's point. If someone with the knowledge that idols don't exist is eating, and, and, and one who thinks that they are real or has a hard time adjusting to that, See someone eating the meat sacrificed to idols, he'll be encouraged to eat and thus defile his conscience. So Paul is saying, listen, how dare we do anything to cause our brother or sister to be ruined? Let me say it differently. What may not be a sin at first may become a sin if I exercise my freedom in a way that's harmful to others. What Paul is saying, you're free. You can eat that meat, and you're not in sin. But if by eating that meat you cause somebody else to stumble, now it becomes a sin for you because you've just ruined that brother, and that's somebody for whom Christ died. We can balance our individuality with community. This may be fine for me, but I'm not all by myself. Others are watching me, he says. I don't want to do anything that would ruin them spiritually. So, so let me bring this down to you just again, just another example. I won't go as big or as hard as I did on the COVID thing. So just, just no, I'm not going to like, you know, now I'll push you down. I'm not going to kick you. But imagine I'm riding in the car with a friend of mine. And let's say this, this, this friend of mine came from a life of drugs and alcohol abuse. And he's lost his driver's license because of his drinking. And so one evening, I'm picking him up to take him to his job. And, and a song comes on the radio. And my friend turns to me and he says, hey, man, that's a song I used to party to. Man, I've smoked some stuff and I've put down many a drink while singing that song. That song takes me back to that time in life. It takes me back to some dark rooms and some dark times. Man, that song, I don't know if I like it anymore. What am I going to do in that moment? Am I going to turn it up or am I going to turn it off? It's my car. It's my radio. It's my gas. It's my seat he's sitting in. But for the sake of his conscience, I will take what's free for me and my individually, and I will balance it with the fact that he's a part of the community. I will balance my individuality with the needs of those in my church. Does this make sense? I know this is heady. I know this is hard. Thirdly, and very quickly, I can balance indulgence and consideration. I can balance indulgence and consideration. Look there in verse 11. He says, For through your knowledge he was weak as ruined, and the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. That's strong language. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. This is so important. 
The weaker brother, the one who's not as free as you are to do some things, the one who may not know what you know, the one who's still learning in Christ, this is someone for whom Christ died. Jesus loves them and has had deep compassion on them. He died to himself that he might die for them. Did you catch that? Jesus died to himself that he might die for them. That's what Paul's saying. The gospel applies here. I must crucify me so that I can benefit other people. That's exactly what Jesus did. Let's remember that while we may be able to indulge in certain freedoms, we won't if we know it causes harm to somebody else. And if you violate another believer's conscience, it's not just a little deal, it's a big deal. Because if Jesus loves somebody enough to die for them, the stronger believer ought to love them enough to give up a freedom. We don't want to ruin one another with our freedom. So verse 12, he says, you sin against Christ. When you use your knowledge, your individuality, and your freedom to indulge in such a way that it causes somebody else to have a problem, you don't only sin against them, you sin against Christ. So what do we do? I balance the fact that I can indulge in this with considering how important they are to Jesus. Verse 13, here's the meat. And it's been offered to an idol, and I know there's nothing evil about it. I know it was a good deal. I got it for cheap, but I'll walk away from it, and I will never eat meat again if it's a problem for my brother. Because my brother has tremendous value to Jesus, and because he matters to Jesus, he ought to matter to me. I can balance information with compassion and individuality with community and indulgence with consideration. Pardon me while I grab something. So I have a little grandson. He just turned one. His name is Knox. And Knox is crawling right now. He's getting, at, he's getting after it, man. He's so getting after it. But I know here in just a few moments, a few months even really, that, that Knox, my little grandson who's one, I know he's going to start walking. I know that. I mean, I can just tell you, I know he's going to walk. He's just going to try to catch up with his younger, his older brother actually. So let's just imagine that we're over at my house and, and I'm sitting there in the living room at my house and I'm sitting here and I've got my feet out like this. And I know that Knox is probably starting to walk right now, and so he's just learning the basics. And let's just say I see him coming around the corner, stumbling and doing all these things, and I just kind of leave my feet out there, and I don't move them. And Knox comes in, and Knox trips over my feet. Who am I in trouble with? Well, I'm in trouble with his mom and dad. I'm probably more in trouble with Rachel. But let me ask you a question. Am I free to sit in my own house and do this? I mean, can I sit in my own house with my feet out? <laughs> yeah. Can I sit here in this church with my feet out like some of you are doing? If not, we all in sin. Right? And let me ask you this question. Am I wrong for leaving my feet out when I know uh, my little grandson is struggling to walk. And if I don't move my feet in, do I cause him to stumble or did he just stumble? I caused him to stumble. 
because I knew something he didn't know. I know how to walk and he doesn't. So it's up to me to pull my feet in so that my grandson doesn't stumble over something I'm free to do. Does this make sense? You tracking with me? But can you imagine somebody's going to say, well then, you know, Pastor, what this means is, is this means all I've got to do is just tell people what I'm uncomfortable with and they can't do it. That's how some people are going to use this. They're going to say, well then, I don't like this and therefore you can't do it. It's what the Scripture says. Well, hold on, let's, let's go back to my living room. Now let's just imagine that Knox is five or six years of age and I got my feet out and I'm watching a game and Knox now knows how to walk and he comes in the living room and he says, hey, move your feet, dummy. Two things going to happen in that moment. <laughs> One, ain't no child going to speak to me that way. And number two, now I am for sure going to keep my feet out there. And I may actually help him. Because see, now I know that he knows. And it's not up to me to move my feet anymore because he knows. So then when believers know what I don't know, or know what I do know, it's up to them now. It's on them. It's not on me anymore. Does this make sense? This is very difficult to illustrate. It's very difficult to communicate. But I'm trying to speak to your heart just for a minute to let you know that it's on us. Now, side note here again is that it's up to me to suspend my freedoms for other people. I wonder, Heidi, if you and those are singing, if you guys would come on up. I want to close today, and I just want to kind of do the book and just ask you three questions. Number one is simply this. How can I show love and compassion to others right now who may be struggling? Rather than expecting them to know what I know, how do I die to me and reach them right where they're at? Here's another question. How can I encourage other people in their spiritual growth instead of being the reason they don't grow? Some people stop growing in church because they say you have all the rules and you seem to obey them so well and you make me feel really bad because I don't do it the way you do it. And therefore they're judged and they just leave the church. How can we change that? Third one is, is what do I need to adjust? In other words, how do I need to pull my feet in when I'm around some people? What do I need to adjust in my life? Maybe there are some areas where you have your feet out and you need to pull them in. And then also today, I want you to know, man, if you're here today, Paul's just told you about this Jesus Christ. Remember I told you I want to give you an opportunity to believe? This is the Lord. There is no other God. There is no one else in the universe but one God. And his name is Jesus. And he is the only person who can save us from our sins. And you know that you're a sinner just like I do. I really don't believe right now in this moment that I have to convict you about your sin. Because I believe that before you got here today, the Holy Spirit did a really good job of that. 
What I believe that you're looking for is the answer for what to do with the conviction. And Jesus is the Messiah. His name is Messiah, Yeshua. He is the only one, the one that's been anointed by God to save us. And today, if you would just turn your life over to Him, if you will repent of your sin, repent means to just kind of change direction. I know what I'm doing is wrong, and with my heart, I turn my life and say, I don't want to do it my way anymore. I've sinned against God. I want to turn to God and ask Him to have mercy on me and to forgive me of my sin. And if you want to do that today and have Jesus come in to cleanse you from all your sin, past, present, and future, and to change your life like He's changed so many people's lives, I invite you to come to this altar today. We'll tell you about Jesus. Would you stand to your feet with me? I'm going to pray and then we're going to open this altar and let God do what God does. Jesus, today, would you just, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help me keep my feet out of other people's way? Show me, God, where I can help my brothers and sisters. And may you lead anyone who doesn't know you today home. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.